Hey guys, this is Naeem and you've reached the Mosaic Church Podcast. So excited that you're part of our listening community and I'd love for you to be even more connected. So check out our website. There's more content there and there's more opportunities for you to get connected in our ministries and events as well. Also, love for you to share this content. If this is blessed to you, I know that God wants to use you to bless other people with it. So share this podcast, if you will. Lastly, would you consider supporting this ministry? This is made possible by other people's generosity, and I'd love for you to pay it forward. Join us to reclaim the message and the movement of Jesus together. So would you consider giving to this ministry? I know that God is able to do immeasurably more through us when we come together. Thank you so much. God bless you and enjoy. Is it because we don't want to come across spiritually weak that we don't attempt spiritually hard things in our life? Do we focus on our ability? Then it's based on persistence and effort. We might not be equally talented, but we can all be equally persistent. Good morning. Good morning, Mosaic. How y'all doing? Awesome, awesome. Really glad to see you guys here this morning. My name is Kristen. I am one of the pastors here at Mosaic. I'm actually a full-time pastor here at Mosaic and also a full-time working parent. So I'm in a very good mood today because tomorrow my girls go back to school. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you so much. Tomorrow is the first day of school. Actually, our middle and high school students are getting ready to gather together after service today. They're going to go have a pool party to celebrate the end of summer and the kickoff of our youth group season. So we are going to have baptisms in a little bit. I'm feeling good. It's going to be a great morning. I'm really glad that you guys are here. And I actually want to talk about relationships. Let's talk about relationships today. Would you say that you are good at relationships? Would the person next to you say that you are good at relationships? See, I am a people person. I'm a people person. So I am very, very good at relationships when people let me be good at relationships. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when my husband does what I need him to do around the house and when my kids are listening, when my coworkers leave me alone and let me get my, my work done, when my friends text me back. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm very good at relationships when people pretty much just do what it is that I want them to do. Anybody else feel me on that? But I think, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, but my people do not always necessarily play by my expectations, my games. They don't always do exactly what I want them to do. And so what I think we really need to talk about is grace in relationships and how to give people grace. See, that way we can actually be good at relationships even when we're around people. That would be a good thing to do, right? 9.30, hello, wake up. Let's be good at relationships even when we're around people. Okay, I have better jokes, so let's see if they, the next one's hit. We're going to find out. I wonder, though, if the reason that we're not good at relationships or that the reason relationships are hard are not because of the people in our lives, but because of the way that we think about the people in our lives. So we are in a series called Mind Games, which is based off of a passage in Romans 12 too. Let's go ahead and look at it together. It says, do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by doing what? Changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. 
The big idea of this series is that God can change you and God can transform you if you will change the way you think. And this series was actually inspired by a book called Mindset by psychologist Carol Dweck, who talks about two different types of mindsets. There are fixed mindsets and there are growth mindsets. Now, a fixed mindset person pretty much believes that everything just is what it is. You have the intelligence that you have and that you're going to have. You have the talent or the skill that you were born with. That's all you've got. Whatever you have, whatever you are, if you're good or you're bad, that just is. People with a growth mindset, on the other hand, believe that there's always room for improvement, that we can change, that we can transform, that we can become something different. They actually look at obstacles or challenges as opportunity for change instead of something that is holding them back. When it comes to our faith, we can also have either a fixed or growth mindset. A fixed mindset in faith, I think, can look one of two ways. It either says, I know everything there is to know about religion. I know God. I know what God meant by this Bible verse. I know what this scripture means. I know what this story means. I know all of the spiritual practices that I'm supposed to do and I've got it all figured out. Or a fixed mindset in faith can say, I will never actually be that person because I'm never going to understand. I'll never have that strong enough of a faith. My spirituality will never be that deep. A growth mindset in faith says, wherever I am right now can actually improve. I can better understand scriptures by putting in the work and studying and learning and reading. I can have a deeper relationship with God by putting in the effort to know him more. And so the big question for today is, do you give yourself and the people around you room to grow? In week one of this series, God gave Jacob a new identity and a new name. In week two, we saw him give Joseph an attitude adjustment. And in week three today, we're going to see Jesus give his disciples a new approach. Now, we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 18 today. We're going to look at it in the message translation, which is not one that we normally use. The message translation is more of a paraphrase that Eugene Peterson put together just and with more of like relatable language. We are going to use it today because sometimes I like a spicy Jesus. Okay, so that's what we're going to go with. Let's go ahead and jump right in to the first one. At this point, Jesus is doing miracles and people are starting to realize who he is. They're starting to realize that he is the son of God and this Messiah that they've been waiting for. People are coming to watch and see what he has going on. And so his disciples thought, you know, this might be a really good time to turn the attention back to us and play a really fun game of like who gets to be the best right now. So that's the question that they come to Jesus with. At about the same time, the disciples came to Jesus asking, who gets the highest rank in God's kingdom? For an answer, Jesus called over a child whom he stood in the middle of the room and said, I'm telling you once and for all that unless you return to square one and start over like children, you're not even going to get a look at the kingdom, let alone get in. Whoever, what is this word? Becomes simple and elemental again, like this child, will rank high in God's kingdom. What's more, when you receive the childlike on my account, it's the same as receiving me. Jesus is telling them you have to become childlike. And scholars agree that he is not just talking about children here. It can be people that are younger than you, people that are younger in the faith, or people that maybe you actually honestly kind of look at as younger than you or beneath you. Now, 
at Mosaic, we have all kinds of babies right now, lots of kids. And I, well, y'all can watch me. I just go around the foyer from like baby to baby, right? We do this. We're so drawn to babies and children. Why? Because of the qualities of children and childlike people. They are innocent, right? They thrive on their ability to wonder and to play and to be creative. They are trusting They believe the best about people around them. They believe the best about the world around them. They're vulnerable. They are ready and willing to listen and to learn and to grow and to love. They are dependent, which requires humility. They're not trying to assert their power or their way or their success in anything. They're ready and willing to start and start over, to try and to try again. Their lives are nothing but potential, nothing but potential ready to grow. Whereas adults more often tend to have a fixed mindset. We can be skeptical. We tend to assume the worst about people. Maybe we're standoffish and we don't trust people because our experiences maybe have showed us that we shouldn't or that we can't. We'd like to focus on our independence our need to prove the things that we can do and achieve and claim on our own. And we tend to live in a world that we have figured out, a world where we know what everybody's about and we know how it works based on either the mistakes that we've made in the past or hurts that other people have put on us. And we've decided that we just know how the world works and who people are. See, I think what the disciples missed here, and I think what we often miss is this this is not how Jesus' kingdom works. Jesus is telling them, my kingdom is upside down. If you wanna be great in my kingdom, you have to actually go backwards. You have to become like a child. And he is going to change their approach from a fixed focus where they are looking through a lens of pride and narcissism to um, a growth potential where they are going to be able to, in humility, see the potential in the people around them. In the next few passages, as we go through these verses, Jesus is going to show them specifically how to go back to a place where there's room to grow. Let's go to verse 6. But if you give them, these childlike people, a hard time bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, you'll soon wish you hadn't. You'd be better off dropped in the middle of the lake with a millstone around your neck, doomed to the world for giving these God-believing children a hard time. Hard times are inevitable, but you don't have to make it worse, and it's doomsday to you if you do. Okay, so Jesus is using some strong language here, some strong language. This is almost even like bigger words and seems to be a bigger deal than when he talks about, you know, the big sins or like breaking a ten, one of the Ten Commandments. So what does this tell us about God and what he cares about? It tells us that he cares about all people, even the people that the world looks down on and that how we treat people matters. How we treat people matters. So let's really grasp the magnitude, right, of this millstone and what it is that Jesus is saying here. So millstones were stone circles. They were probably about this size. There would be one that was flat, and then there would be another one, its pair, that would stand up on its end, and that had a handle. And so generally they were used in the kitchen, and women would use these to ground corn and get ready for food. So picture these like stones, right? But this particular phrase here that Jesus is using, in the Greek, it's moulos, 
anikos. Mulos anikos, and it translates a particular way. Mulos means millstone, the big stone that Jesus was talking about. Anikos means of an ass or a donkey. So we have a photo to actually see what it is that Jesus was talking about here. This is a millstone that was so large, it would take a donkey's effort to pull it around. Jesus is not talking about the one that they have in their kitchen. He's like, hey, doomsday to you of this magnitude if you think that you are going to mistreat people. He is being extreme on purpose. He is using extreme language on purpose. Back then, Middle Eastern teachers often used exaggeration or figurative language to make a point. And so Jesus is using this specific phrase, this mulas anikos, as a warning to not mislead or mistreat the childlike people because he wants them to understand that judgment for people who do is extreme. He says it'd be better for them to be dropped off in the middle of a lake with a big ass stone around their neck. He says, this is better. It'd be better for you to be doing this than to mistreat people. I love verse seven right after this, where he says, hard times are inevitable, but you don't have to make it worse. So when it comes to people, right? What are hard times? What are hard times? There goes my ring. What are hard times in relationships? It's all good. When we disappoint people, when people disappoint us, when we make mistakes, when people fail us, when they don't meet our expectations. See, part of letting people grow is letting them change. Are your kids allowed to make a mistake? Are your parents allowed to let you down? Are your coworkers allowed to fail you? Because I'm gonna tell you right now, if they haven't yet, they're going to. They're gonna. And when they do, Do you help them to grow or do you make it worse? Here's how you can tell. When somebody you're in a relationship with messes up, do they come to you and tell you because you are their safe person that they can come and be real with? Or do you only find out that they make a mistake because you just happen to find out because they're afraid of what your reaction will be? See, we make it worse when we punish people. There's lots of ways we can make it worse. One of the ways is when we punish people. Now, I am a parent. I am a mom. I worked with kids for decades. I am not saying there should not be consequences. But there is a difference between a consequence that kind of, you know, where the punishment fits the crime, so to speak, or where our consequences are actually teaching the behavior that we want to see instead versus a punishment that is intentionally painful so they'll remember for next time. Those don't generally work. Also, anytime that we find ourselves punishing someone that we are not actually the parent of, maybe trying to hurt someone who has hurt us first, we are making it worse. Another way we make it worse is when we try to control people. Maybe we use fear or we use our authority. We take away somebody's voice or their agency to make decisions. We make it worse when we remind people of not only the mistake that they just made, but the mistake they made last time or last year or the mistakes that they continued to make in a pattern. When we remind them of who they used to be. We make it worse when we use extreme language like you always this or you never this. All of these put people in a fixed, boxed in place where they are not allowed 
to grow. We have got to let people become who they're going to become. And it generally involves making mistakes. It also involves risk. Because that means we don't know who that person is going to become or if we're really even going to like that person better than the version that they are right now. My dad is a lay speaker at the Methodist church. And so that means that even though he never made ministry his career, I grew up listening to my dad teach and preach at church. Now, you would think that growing up listening to him, we would have come away now with the same exact faith and the same exact beliefs. That's probably what my parents were hoping for (laughs) when they raised us in the church. But it hasn't exactly played out that way. Now that I also have the opportunity to speak from time to time, there are weeks that my dad and I are prepping at the exact same time to speak on the same Sunday. Depending on the message, if you were to take my message and my dad's and put them down side by side, there is a chance that you would look at them and go, you guys don't believe the same thing at all. You don't have the same faith at all. Because as we have grown in our faith, each of us somehow chasing after who it is that we believe God is calling us to, chasing after where it is God is directing us and what we truly think he is showing us in scripture, we sometimes end up with different or even opposing interpretations. And yet, when I called my dad last week, and told him that I was researching and prepping to exegesis and go through this chapter of Matthew, he called me, called me back and he said, come over, because I've got some stuff for you. And he handed me a stack of books. He gave me a stack of his resources, even knowing that I might use them to say something that he would never say. Not just the Greek translation, but something else even. Even knowing that I might say something that he does not agree with. This is how we let people grow spiritually. We decide that we are okay with people believing different things. We acknowledge that there is a mosaic of diversity when it comes to beliefs and what a faith lived out looks like, and we choose to be okay with it. We choose to say, I believe that God is doing this in you and that you feel like you are chasing after him and maybe we land in different places or maybe we end up at the same place, but it takes much different timelines to get there. But that is okay with me because I'm gonna trust you to God and we can still be in relationship even when we don't agree. Spiritual maturity is making space and accepting differences and disagreements and choosing to be in relationships with people anyway. We are not responsible for how people turn out, but we are responsible if we stifle the person that they are meant to become. I know for parents, this can be especially tricky. And so let me tell you really quick, we have an event coming just for you on September 19th. Meredith Miller is my go-to expert on all things kids and faith. And she is coming to Mosaic to do a live Q&A. We're gonna have an event just for you guys, anybody watching, anybody that wants to show up. So if you are um, curious about how to create faith practices that are not a one-size-fits-all, and you're like, I need to figure out how to get my weird humans in my house to understand God, even though they don't want to have a quiet time, and they don't want to listen to me read the Bible, and they don't want to pray, but I'm kind of worried about screwing up their faith, (laughs) 
We would love to have you join us. There are cards in the foyer. The information is also all on the website. I am telling you, do not miss this event. All right, let's keep going. Verse eight, if your hand or your foot gets in the way of God, chop it off and throw it away. You're better off maimed or lame and alive than the proud owners of two hands and two feet, godless in a furnace of eternal fire. And if your eye distracts you from God, pull it out and throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 2020 vision from inside the fire of hell. Isn't a spicy Jesus fun sometimes? I don't know if anybody else grew up in the church in the 80s and 90s, but I'm gonna tell you what, Christianity in the 90s was intense. It was intense. There was a lot of memorizing scripture. There was a lot of using things out of context. And this is one of those verses and passages that I only really ever heard about at a youth conference or youth group, really when they wanted to prevent specific behaviors from us, anything that had to do with attraction or lust or, you know, teenage hormones. But that is not actually what this passage is about. It's not just for teens, and it's not just about our secret thoughts. Again, Jesus is using that common exaggeration language to make a point. What he's really talking about here is pruning. He talks a lot about pruning in the Gospels, which is basically just a way of saying anything that's getting between you and God, you just need to get rid of it. It needs to go. Maybe that's breaking a bad habit. Maybe that's changing a deep-rooted belief. Maybe that's adopting a different attitude. Maybe it's ending a relationship that is not good for you. And he doesn't hide the fact here that it's painful. In fact, he's clearly saying that it can feel like losing a part of yourself, but it's also extremely necessary because being connected to God is more important than anything else. In this particular case, he's actually talking about pruning anything that keeps someone else from experiencing God. N.T. Wright says to look at this passage kind of metaphorically, like to ask your eye, what is it seeing? What is your eye seeing? Not just what is it looking at, but who? Or who is it overlooking? What is it turning away from? Because seeing that thing makes you uncomfortable. What is your hand doing? Is your hand reaching out to pull someone up or is it extending to keep someone down and away from you? Is it keeping that hierarchy in place? What is your tongue doing? Is it misleading people? Is it slandering those people because they don't agree with you? Are, is it telling people of a God who loves them and has grace for all of their imperfections? Or is it using the name of Jesus to shame people and control a certain narrative? This is what we're talking about here. If any part of you is keeping someone else from getting close to Jesus, it's gotta go. It's gotta go. And friends, the only way to prune it, the only way to intervene here is to have the humility to admit that it's there. We have to have the humility to admit that it's there. Jesus is again speaking to their pride because people who won't admit that they have been the cause of someone else's harm or hurt or stress are also themselves in a fixed mindset because their pride is keeping them and the people around them from growing. All right, we're gonna pick it up in verse 12 here, the last section. Jesus says, look at it this way. 
If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, doesn't he leave the 99 and go after the one? And if he finds it, doesn't he make far more over it than over the 99 who stay put? Your father in heaven feels the same way. He doesn't want to lose even one of these simple believers. There's a lot of pruning talk in the gospels. There's also a lot of sheep talk in the gospels. This was a very common thing. Communal flocks were a thing where there really would be flocks of about a hundred sheep and there would be a couple different shepherds that were assigned to them. They were everywhere. It was very common. And so what would often happen is the sheep would get themselves into a little bit of trouble. Sheep would wander away. They might stray. They might fall off a cliff. They might get stuck in a ravine. Lots of things. Sheep were always needing help. And so it was also common for the shepherd to go, I'm going to leave my 99. I'm going to entrust the rest of my flock to you other shepherds. And I'm going to go off and I'm going to do whatever it takes to go find this sheep who has once again, probably more than once, strayed and gotten itself into a predicament. Christians love this analogy. We love this analogy of, you know, the one lost sheep being rescued. But I think that's because we only ever center ourselves as the one lost sheep. If we look at these couple of verses in context with all of the rest of what Jesus was saying here, we remember that he's talking about receiving people and how we treat people and how we care for people. And in that case, we are not the sheep in this story. That makes us the shepherd. That makes us the shepherd. So I wonder if Jesus put this here just to ask his disciples who their one lost sheep was. Like, hey, good job on all those relationships that you handle well. I'm really glad that you love the people that are easy to love. But what about that one person who doesn't get that from you? Who is the one person that you still need to change your mindset about? It could be a person or a people group even that you don't understand and so therefore you just don't accept them. It could be a person that rubs you the wrong way. You don't know why your personality just clashes so you just tend to keep your distance. Maybe it's that person that you don't like, even though if you're honest with yourself, you don't actually really even know why. Either somebody told you something about them once that defined who you decided they were, or you're judging them based off of their one mistake, their one worst moment. You're not really sure why, but you know that there's that person out there. Or maybe, like me, which is honestly maybe worse, that one person is the person that you're supposed to love the most. Maybe it is the person that you love the most, but because you've convinced yourself that they know that they love you, your words and actions don't actually have to reflect a, a never-ending accepting love, especially when times are hard, especially when they disappoint you. I think some of you know right now that you need to be the shepherd. You know who that one person is and you know what you need to do. You might need to forgive. You might need to apologize. You might need to apologize again. You might need to have a hard conversation and let go of who that person was so that they can move into who they're becoming. And I, there are probably some of you too that are like, okay, this was a lot and this is hard and I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> 
And that's okay because this is a challenging message. But could it be that you struggle to let other people grow because you're afraid that they're going to grow without you or that they're going to grow away from you or that they're going to grow into someone that you're not going to know or someone that won't need you? Grief of a past loss, a lost relationship could be keeping you stuck right now. But you can trust God, that he is the good shepherd who cares for all of his sheep. That includes you and everyone you're in relationship with. And you can let go of who you need other people to be. You can let go of the person that other people have told you you need to be and trust that that growth process isn't over. No matter what you've done or who you've been, there's always potential to grow. See, it's hard to extend grace to other people when you haven't received grace yourself. It's hard to forgive others when you won't forgive yourself. It's hard to love other people well when you're not loving to yourself. And so can I just tell you, if that's you, if you're like, I can't even think about other people right now, because I'm so broken and I'm so hurting and I'm so desperately in need to understand and believe this for myself, can I tell you that the 99 aren't enough for God and you are the one that he is pursuing right now. You are the one that he is chasing after. And it doesn't matter if there are a room full of people worshiping him, if you are still out wandering, he is going to do whatever it takes to show you that you are worth pursuing and that you are worth loving and that he has grace for whatever situation you're in and whatever mistakes you've made. He doesn't blame you for wandering or straying. He doesn't blame you for finding yourself in the predicament that you're in. He just wants to be in a relationship with you. And he sent Jesus to prove that he will do whatever it takes until he's in a relationship with you. Thanks for listening to this message from Mosaic Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For more audio and video content, visit us at mosaicchurch.tv.